The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, good afternoon. Let's finish up uh, talking about the Eastern Conference. Got a lot of teams to get to here. And so we shall begin at the top of the alphabet in the Eastern Conference, the Atlanta Hawks. Yes, the Hawks are 8-8, eight 3-4 and, eight, and four since last 1560. They are ninth in the overall NBA in net rating, cleaning the glass, plus 4.3 per 100 possessions. And the split that we at least to some degree expected, second in offense, 23rd in defense. Maybe didn't expect it to be that that extreme, but whatever. Projected to win 46 games per ESPN's BPI. That is fifth in the Eastern Conference, 76% chance of making the playoffs. And unfortunately, some injury news for the Atlanta Hawks. Jalen Johnson has a fractured wrist. He's going to be out four to six weeks. Thankfully, it will not require surgery. And he has been the real breakout. I mean, we've done discussions about whether like that he has been their best forward so far. He's surpassed DeAndre Hunter, surpassed Sadiq Bay. And so now they will they have other players to lean on, but they're gonna have to lean on those players. Yeah, and Johnson to me gives them at least like some playmaking defensively as well. They're gonna miss yes. that a lot. They're really gonna miss his twenty-two percent defensive rebounds. Bay is okay on the boards. Hunter is worse than okay on the boards. Okongu is below average for a center as well. So I mean that may lead to them having to play more of Clint Capella and yeah, 67% true shooting on the offensive end. His jumper was starting to come around L- low volume, but he was creeping into the, the mid thirties there. And I think they're also a big place where they've really changed for the better. This season has been their ability to push the ball. And basically anytime he gets one of those 22% defensive rebounds, he's pushing it up hard uh, or he's running the floor really hard. And he, he's a devastating finisher at the basket in transition also. So uh, I think they're really going to miss him uh, quite a bit during this stretch. They He is easily their most athletic player and they become a very small and unathletic team, I would say, without him. Four to six weeks is also a long time. And as is always the case, any subsequent injuries become even more important because then then things start to get closer to shorthanded. And we'll have to watch we'll to see. So the um one other thing that you want you a couple other things kind of as we're talking about the Hawks to mention. Second year player AJ Griffin, who played a fair amount last year, has been out of the Hawks rotation. And remember that they've been dealing with some absences at times, and so for him to not be in there is significant. And then DeJounte Murray had this awesome start. And that awesome start still exists, but his season long numbers are significantly more pedestrian now. 
Yeah, I think he actually now is right about the same season that he was having last year after some struggles. He had a really rough game in Boston. That's a game that with the absence of Porzingis and Drew Holiday, you would have hoped that they could be more competitive in. And yeah, DeJounte Murray is just not really able to keep up the efficiency. So basically usage efficiency exactly where it was a season ago. They have not, I think, gotten what they wanted out of him defensively. Uh, as we talk about the end of this crazy Hawks Nets game, uh, that will mm-hmm. come more into focus for us. He also is not giving them, and this is maybe somewhere he could improve uh, as much as he did in San Antonio on the defensive glass. Like his defensive rebounding rate is about half what it was uh, later in his San Antonio years. Yeah, he, he just has become interestingly because he was kind of brought in to be like a good fit next to Trey Young. He's really more become like just a, a scoring guard and has not contributed as much. I think he's maybe gotten a little better as a passer, but not crazily so. And And, his defense and his rebounding have fallen off. And continuing a trend that often happens for players is the role within the offense increases. DeJounte Murray's defensive playmaking has dropped significantly from where it was in his best years like those early kind of sac those early san antonio years like he had a steal rate over three or near three a couple of times and he had a block rate at one and a half his first two years and now those are two percent and half a percent respectively um and so murray one kind of wild stat and he of course has the chance to change this this year he has never had even a league average true shooting percentage because it's he's gone up over the years but hasn't reached league average as league average has risen so that's not fantastic fantastic but let's talk about the well, I, one his- thing one thing i will give him credit for we were concerned about the offensive fit with trey i actually think that because of the way he's improved his three-point shooting uh he's now shooting career high 37 percent, 6.2 per 36 he was at 5.2 last year i'm not really as concerned about that anymore i think he has made a, enough strides there to where he's like shooting it adequately enough to play next to trey young and hey i mean they're the number two offense right like, you can't sure. really complain too much uh, about that part of it and and regardless of his individual stats uh, he has been a major component there i'm i'm happy you brought that up and we will transition into a game that you and i spent some time on in the nba ricochet on playback on wednesday it was a a surprisingly fun game yeah. against the and by the way join us again tomorrow for nba ricochet on playback gonna be a wild night last night of the in-season tournament and we will be there probably around maybe five o'clock pacific or so maybe five thirty. catch the end of like the four thirty and the five o'clock games probably uh at least specific yeah. time you'll, for one, you'll get to zone. see me try to do tiebreakers on the fly which is oh man fun, fun or not fun depending on who you are in this yeah maybe scenario. we should should we maybe we should make a spreadsheet because yeah i don't think the league updates it that quickly maybe we should uh, uh they don't but i i i may we'll have to we'll have to i'll try to do some prep for it oh yeah love prep danny is the ultimate prepper uh okay actual net talks here um just some i don't need to go through every single possession but some general thoughts at the end of this game you know the hawks defensive rating is 116.8 23rd in the nba is it possible that that could go down by maybe half a a percentage uh, or a half a point or so just based on quinn finally figuring out 
that he needs to take Trey Young out of the game on defense-only possessions? It was one of the most egregious examples I can recall of leaving a star player in because it was so obviously a defense-only possession, and it was so obvious that the Nets were going to attack him. Yeah, they did, and Dre just gets... The the circumstance was timeout, so obviously you have the, the possibility of taking him out of the game. End of regulation, and I think even like... There was some confusion, it looked like, briefly, of like, we thought Trey was going to come out, and then it could, oh, no, he actually is on the floor. And so the Nets take it the full length of the court with 11.1 seconds remaining. Mikhail Bridges goes right at Trey and pick and roll, blows by him. They also have gone small, so they've taken out both of their centers. To the Hawks' credit, I think it was Jalen Johnson came over, helped to force a miss for Mikhail Bridges. But then Cam Johnson, great job, by the way, by Cam Johnson, who normally would be spacing out. One thing that we always talk about teams should do is crash the glass extremely hard when you're down in the last minute of the game when you you miss a shot. So they're down by one. Cam Johnson tips it and puts him up one. Then going back the other way, Trey redeems himself by getting to the foul line on a bad foul by Spencer Dinwiddie with one second left. They attack Dinwiddie in pick and roll, but Trey's like, going full speed to his right i don't think he really could have gotten to a good shot if dinwiddie had just kind of let him go but trey draws the contact only made one out of two though yeah uh, by the way the second time and the second time in the last like 20 seconds of the game where trey young splits free throws that would have put his team in firmer control yeah then the at the end of the ot i'm sorry at the end of regulation they get it into mikhail bridges this play-by-play says that he actually got the shot off i didn't agree that he did but basically he catches the ball on the move takes a dribble and then airballs it in so they never really had to look at whether he got it off or not but that would be a common theme for the nets of taking too many dribbles before the clock is going to expire at the end of a period in this game yes uh a couple other things that i was really impressed by though in the overtime mikhail bridges and he did this during the meet of the game as well a number of times he's got this move now I, i thought he had maybe his best isolation scoring game that i've seen and yeah that'll happen when you're on your way to 45 points yeah but and i thought he really abused dejounte murray pretty badly i thought dejounte just could not keep him in front and then bridges did a great job of accelerating and he's got this body control where he can get come to a jump stop off a hard drive at the dotted line and actually shoot a fadeaway off a jump stop off a hard drive and so that is a really difficult shot to defend and if he gets kind of inside of 15 feet he's comfortable making that shot so that was really kind of his bread and butter uh, as he was attacking and of course they, he would be the pick and roll ball handler he'd go after trey or they would just isolate him against dejounte murray and he really was getting pretty darn good shots uh, i felt like he still needs to improve as a passer like the couple of times when they did send adequate help to make him get off the ball he kind of tried this long looping pass to the weak side in the overtime that just didn't get there in time for the guy to actually take the shot um so so yeah i wasn't too impressed by the hawks point of attack defense at one point they tried to put jalen johnson on that left them thin behind the play though uh, jalen johnson at least did, did a little bit more to bother him deandre hunter wasn't really able to do much and of course they always had the possibility of just going at trey young uh to put that whoever the on-ball defender was in difficulty anyway just so we have it for the season bridges because we got to ask this on nba ricochet like how's he doing relative to last year and 58 percent true shooting on 26 usage that is a slight drop in true shooting and a four percent drop in usage from just the splits from when he was in brooklyn last year that was a ridiculous 61 yeah. percent on true shooting on 30 usage but there were times in this game against the hawks where he looked like the best player on the floor and where he was you know and and 
and the ability to create good offense and also not be Trey Young on defense was important at, at moments in time in the game. And with Bridges, it's very notable that the area where he's worse than his kind of career norms is he's only making 35% of his threes. It's a harder yeah. diet. That, now, he is on fire recently, though, because the last yes. time I checked that, it was like 25%. Right. And so, like, the idea that Bridges could be something close to what he was for the for that last stretch of last year, I think that's totally plausible. The idea that, he, you know, all of that, maybe not quite, but, but relatively close. And that's extremely positive for the Brooklyn Nets. While I'm talking about the Nets more in the abstract, their stats for the season, they're 8-8, eight and eight, just like the Hawks, 3-3 three and three since the last 1560. Plus 1.1 1. 1 net rating is actually 15. So keep in mind that means the you know the median is between 15 and 16, but it's clearly positive this year. That means the negatives are being held by a smaller number of teams. Eighth in offense, 20th in defense. Um, BPI projects them to finish 45 and 36, 37, which is the sixth seed. Um, 67% chance of making the playoffs. And one other thing before we get back into the the meat of the overtime. Last year, the Nets were 14th in forcing turnovers. They were 11th after the deadline. And their roster is largely similar, with one notable exception, which I'll bring up. They're currently 29th in the league and two-tenths of 1% off of last. That's concerning, but it's less concerning because of how much time Nick Claxton has missed. And their roster is going to look hopefully fundamentally different. Like their their schemes and all that rely on Claxton more than most teams because this team does not have an actual center on their roster other than Claxton. Let us return now to this overtime. Trey Young had some amazing moments uh, in the overtime. He hit two difficult isolation fadeaways. Uh, he caught the defense napping. This was actually like, the one time Mikhail Bridges was on him. And I will say I've not felt Mikhail Bridges defensively in Brooklyn nearly as much as you did in Phoenix. Agreed. Uh, now, part of that is because there are other places to attack. Part of it is because they haven't had their full complement. Part of it is because he's had more offensive responsibilities. So Trey hits this ridiculous logo three when Bridges kind of backs off. So Hawks go up immediately through Trey by five in the overtime. Come down looking for more with about three minutes left in the overtime. And Trey in transition with 19 on the shot clock just pulls a ridiculous three-pointer where you're at that point even up five. You don't want to be like burning clocks specifically. You know, if you have a good shot, take it. But you didn't need to pull that shot at the time. But then he came back and hit another really difficult isolation shot. Uh, he only hit one out of two at the very end, but uh, Lonnie Walker wasn't able to get a shot off the, so when the Hawks ended up winning by two. Defensively for the Nets, I really was unimpressed with the point of attack defense of Dorian Finney-Smith. I felt like he looked a lot slower than we saw him when he was really making an impact in Dallas. And particularly on Trey Young, he just couldn't, just a straight isolation. Like Trey wasn't even really using a screen. Every once in a while, he would bring Dinwiddie into it. But Trey, with that hard right-to-left crossover, either rejecting a screen or more often just to attacking quickly when you kind of get the defense to stand up a little bit. I mean, he was just blowing by Finney Smith so badly, in fact, that I, you remember this play, Danny, where, you know, Trey likes that to get that foul where the guy's like running up his back. And a lot of times if you are driving, you can't get that call because like you can get that call if you've gotten a screen, right? And that's how you get the guy on your back. Yeah, because they're kind of trailing. But 
I haven't seen that before where it was just in an isolation. Trey beat him so badly that he was able to veer back in front with plenty of time to have Finney Smith plow into his back and commit a foul. Normally, if you veer, yeah. Remember, you're not allowed to deviate from your path to generate that contact. So he deviated his path before the contact, and that takes a lot of time. And just like... On that front, there was this idea about Brooklyn of, of oh, they have all these perimeter players that could be useful to other teams and they could they could sell on them. And that's still true, like with DFS and with Royce O'Neal and all that. But you actually need those guys to have good enough years that teams are going to be excited. And Finney Smith has been successful offensively, but they might want to move earlier on that rather than later. Yeah, because you never know. You never like the, the three and D is always finicky. And if they're not a part of your future then move earlier rather than later. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and DeJounte Murray uh, broke Finney Smith's ankles uh, as did. well uh, in that overtime. And I will credit Quinn Center. Like they actually take Trey off the floor up three in the last couple seconds. I was looking for them to foul. Mikhail Bridges catches it way out, tries to drive past Jalen Johnson. They finally decided, all right, we're going to put Jalen Johnson on Mikhail Bridges. And Jalen Johnson at least bothered Bridges enough from behind on a layup to force him to rush it and miss it. Bridges had another number of awesome plays. Uh, But it actually, like Jalen Johnson tripping Bridges up three with 3.2 left was perfect. Like yep. that, that was actually a, like it wasn't intentional. I think they were upset about it, but like that's a great like non-shooting foul with 3.1 left. Now the the Nets did have a timeout remaining, but they didn't actually get any kind of a decent shot off because Lonnie Walker thought that you can take three dribbles with two seconds left <laughs> in, in the game. Not that he would have got a good shot off anyway. So I thought Jalen Johnson was probably their best defender on Bridges, although as I noted, that leaves him a little bit light behind the play. Uh, anything else that you had from this one? No, I think that's about all for me. Yeah, so Atlanta, I mean, they are still 500. It seems like the season is going well. I'm interested to see how they're going to weather the storm. You know, maybe they can get something out of A.J. Griffin, who hasn't really been playing for them, but he's, you know, a much smaller player, obviously. But it does, you know, it doesn't seem like if you look, all right, DeJounte Murray, Trey Young, these guys are both like 57% true shooting. Like, how is it that they are the number two offense? And a lot of it is just running and those guys setting up their solid play finishers. So we'll see. We'll see that continue. It doesn't feel like these guys should be this good offensively but that, that's been the case uh, with Trey Young teams before I just but Trey himself is not scoring as efficiently as he has in the past he's only shooting 42 percent from two right now man it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015 and I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same and then she did some more research and found helix sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types and uh, helix offers 20 unique matches everybody sleeps differently and helix matches are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences hot or cold side sleeper back sleeper so take that helix sleep quiz find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because 
you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the Bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well, I felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all of my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. 
we could transition from the number two offense in the NBA to the numero uno offense in the NBA, and that's the Indiana Pacers. Can, you want to give those you, stats? Can you? Yeah, actually, here, I'll do it since uh, you did the bulk of the work on them. I want to start with this. 123.9 offensive rating so far this season. Recall that usually offense starts off lower. Now, sure, mm-hmm. smaller sample, you have a, a, some outliers. But Indiana right now, you remember that number for Atlanta, 121.2? Indiana is 2.7 points per 100 better than that. How are they doing it? They're shooting the shit out of the ball, number one in E-field goal. But they also, despite how much they run, are only turning it over on 12.8% of their possessions. That's third in the league. And they, for a small team, they actually get a decent number of offensive rebounds. But, I mean, the biggest thing is just that they are shooting incredibly well. Uh, the defense, eh, we don't need to talk about that. They're 29th, but they're still uh, plus 2.1 net rating. We're going to see them in the in-season tournament quarterfinals. They are projected to tie for the ninth seed, 44 and 38, 60% chance of the playoffs. And the big reason why, of course, they have the best offense in NBA history and the best offense in the league by 2.7 points per 100, Cyrus Halliburton. Yes, and since we're bringing up offensive rating, 128.3 for the Pacers when Tyrese Halliburton is on the floor. That That, that is... is- that's the highest number I can ever recall seeing over like a month of basketball for any player. I, I can't recall, and and especially for a guy who's driving that offense. And a totally respectable, roughly a 114 when he sits. Like that 114 when he sits is still around league average, which in many ways is more stunning. Just on the idea of like when you think about who is, even with some of the injuries they've had, who is on and off the floor for the Pacers. But what I wanted to look at, because and, and unfortunately there wasn't a perfect way to do this, so I'm going to go through a couple different avenues of Tyrese Howell. Burton's the 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 frequency and the difficulty of the shots that he's making is something that's very like it's it's almost unprecedented in the league and of course it's important to note there's a big difference between doing so over 15 games than over 82 so when we get into and I always caution this and they're like oh nobody's ever averaged 25 20 and two and then you're like yeah well the reason why is because you're doing it over 15 games and not over a full season but I wanted to get into some of the nitty gritty on it and. There isn't a great database for like self-created threes or anything quite like that. So I did a couple different pathways for it. Terrence Halliburton taking just under seven pull-up threes per game, defined as the NBA does it. This is on their official stats. And making just under 43% of those. And and he's shooting almost 55% on his catch-and-shoot threes, which are far fewer. Um, Last year, only three players took six or more pull-up threes per game. And Curry was the only player who made even better than 37%. Curry made 45 So Halliburton, you know, this is an unprecedented territory. And it's worth noting that Luka Doncic is around at his level as well. But in the history of the NBA, um, at least, so the NBA's database goes back to 2013. 13, the like kind of tracking data pull up shot database. And I think it's fair to argue that no one was taking enough pull up threes before that to to make the list. Maybe I don't even think during the time when the restrict when the when the line was closer. So the first player to ever do that six pull up threes per game was Stephen Curry in fifteen sixteen, his unanimous MVP season. Since then, it has happened a total of twenty one times over full seasons. Only four of those twenty one times did the player make forty percent of those threes or better. Curry did it three times. Damian Lillard did it once. So Halliburton, if he can get even close to that, we're in unprecedented or close to unprecedented, basically unprecedented for non Steph. Curry history. And in if we're getting into like I started with some basketball reference stuff and it's like 
there are, there aren't that many players who have the distribution responsibilities that Halliburton does and shoot this kind of volume and success on threes. So the basic premise that I wanted to, to kind of get to is that we don't know where the rest of the season is going, but something to monitor here, Tyrese Halliburton is in the early stages of what could continue to be the best non-Curry high volume three season by a player who has this kind of role within their offense. Like it's prop the competitor is probably Lillard in 1920, but this is rarefied air. Yeah. I, I mean, he is uh- I think we're going to have to acknowledge at this point, in addition to just how good of a passer he is, that this guy is basically up there with Lillard, Curry, and Steve Nash as like the best shooting point guard ever, right? I mean, there I can't really bring anyone else to mind of just who is now Lillard's a little bit different. Like it's, he's a little more volume than like the crazy efficiency that Nash and Curry had. Nash didn't have the same volume necessarily uh, as these guys, but yeah, the number of, that he's creating, and I mean that third quarter when he put up the twenty five points against the Hawks was uh, kind of his tour de force so far this season in just his ability to generate shots off the dribble and for those right i mean you remember what his statistical profile was i think as a freshman even as a sophomore his usage was so low and you're like wait this guy he's gonna be like you know crossing over like stepping back hitting threes like that is just like we knew that he had pretty good numbers i thought maybe the way that he would be a good score was like coming off the screens off the ball because i did believe in him as a shooter but he's improved his handle so much and because i mean there are times like in college where he would get pressured up and like couldn't even get the ball over half court very well and i mean he is just an incredible improvement story and the fact that he got sent somewhere where he is just like gets the ball like this all the time is amazing but this is just shockingly good shooting from him it it is and one of the ways that i want to phrase this is if halliburton drops regresses to the mean to his career average as a 41 percent shooter though acknowledging when you're on a high volume like this relative to even where he was before the quality of shot should diminish more but let's say he gets to that career average he's at 45 percent now let's say he gets to 41 that would arguably be the greatest high volume three-point shooting season of all time that isn't Stephen Curry so he can he can do worse the rest of the way and still have that line and that's truly incredible one other thing I wanted to throw a pin in for the Pacers um was I I'm because like, we've been watching a fair amount of their stuff especially because the NBA Cup games have been so much fun Miles Turner in Seth's rim protection numbers um 290th out of 435 eligible players we're again we're not dealing with the biggest sample here yet but two other kind of things to to file away isaiah jackson 19th of those 435 in rim protection jalen smith 264th so the rim protection so far has been shaky but they have a player who's sitting back there who has flaws but i'm not saying isaiah jackson no-brainer over jalen smith as your backup center there are a lot of other things that those guys do well and poorly but i also expect turner to play better defensively and he's dealt kind of a shitty hand because of how limited their other perimeter defenders are we've talked about that plenty with the pacers so far yeah, a couple other interesting stats here. Isaiah Jackson contesting 40% of opponent shots around the basket and opponents shooting only 40% on wow. such shots. Another interesting one, Aaron Neesmith, 
Nobody really ever thought of him as a four coming out of school, but he's actually contesting a decent percentage of shots as a four and opponents are only shooting 51%. Again, these are pretty limited numbers uh, at this point in time. Miles Turner, he is contesting like crazy. I'm pretty sure he is leading the NBA in contest percentage uh, among high volume guys contesting 45% of opponent shots on the basket, but they are shooting 58% on those shots, which is kind of an average-ish number. But at least uh, when you're, the more shots you contest, you're going to contest some that are more difficult to get to. And maybe that's going to reduce your impact uh, on some of those shots. But yeah, that'll be interesting to watch what it looks like for Miles Turner and whether Isaiah Jackson, because I think he's being used differently this year, maybe than he has in the past where they had him doing a lot more switching. And now you don't have a contest percentage like that 40% when you're doing a ton of switching. So that might be there. there, Now he's also exceedingly thin and he's going to fall a lot. No, but could could they have like a proto Nick Claxton on their hands here? Like those will be some numbers to, to keep our eye on, surely. We could transition from the second worst defense in the NBA so far to the first worst defense so far, and that is the Washington Wizards. They are two and fourteen on the season, zero for six since the last. 15 Wait, hold on, 16. hold on, da- Danny. Let me let me give you one more stat from the Pacers. Before, oh, go ahead. Before you do before we get into the avalanche of shit about the Wizards, Obi Toppin is contesting 9% of opponent shots at the rim. And the opponent shoots 70% of those. Ugh. As a power forward. How is that, and it's how not is like that possible? Switch, it's not like he's switching an unbelievably large amount of well, the time. Well, but like his backup is Neesmith, who has like double that number. Yeah. Like, and Obi Toppin is like, guy. he's like almost played like center in college. Like, it's just, Katz and I talked about this when he was saying, hey, they're not going to miss Obi Toppin that much because he doesn't play like a power forward. And so like losing him as a backup power forward, like Josh Hart actually plays like more of a power forward than him. Like, yeah, it's really true. Like he just is having no defensive impact. That's incredibly bad. I mean, the guys like Bruce Brown, who he is actually someone who like gets into guys in the perimeter. Bruce Brown contests 18% of opponent shots at the rim, right? Buddy Heald contests 17% of opponent shots at the rim. <laughs> and he's with, like, and, you know, and so it, I was just, I was just, just pulling it. The incredible. overall, de- the overall defensive stats when Neesmith is at the four and turns at the five are bad. They're they're awful actually. But in part, that's because opponents are somehow shooting forty five percent from three in those minutes. That that if that regresses the mean, things will look a little bit better. I wish they forced more turnovers in those minutes, but there there's there's some reasons for that. Let's get back to the Wiz. 2-14 and 14 on the season, 0-6 since the last 15-60. 29th in net rating, ahead of only the San Antonio Spurs, who are not a part of this 15-60, thankfully. Um, 20th in offense, 30th in defense, projected to win 24 games, which is not last in the East. That's 14th in the East per BPI, and they are not making the playoffs. And we're going to talk mostly about that bizarre end of the game against the Hornets, but I wanted to throw out a couple of, a couple of Wizards things before we get there. John Schumann pointed out that the there was a big disparity between the Wizards' success when Poole is on the floor and off the floor. I pulled the numbers after their last game, and it is kind of jaw-dropping. Negative 21.7 net rating when Poole is on the floor. Positive 5.3 net rating when he is off the floor. And it is important to note that every year there are a couple of teams that have just terrible starters and oftentimes they have more passable reserves relative to their starters so you're going to see a big disparity but one of the big concerning ones is that the Wizards offense has straight up sucked when Jordan Poole's been on the floor 106.4 
offensive rating. And it is not a circumstance where Poole is holding his own and the overall talent level is letting him down offensively. In fact, they've been playing, you know, a lot of his minutes are with Tyus Jones, a fair amount of his minutes are with Kyle Kuzma. And like, overall, they should be okay. And Poole, 50% true shooting on 29 usage. Um, his 17% assist rate is actually below the last two seasons with the Warriors and only averaging three and a half assists per 36. And there are reasons to believe that Poole's offensive game will get better. 29% on threes is just worse than I would expect, even if he's not the shooter that he was in his best moments. And it's also a concern that he's not getting to the line of time. He has this kind of grifty game, but he doesn't have quite enough of it there. And so Poole, there's this, there's this idea. I brought this up a little bit with DFS and Royce O'Neal. There, there's this idea with the Wizards that a part of what Winger could be pulling off is rehabilitation, like arbitrage, f- raise these guys' value, and then you could try to move them somewhere else. And the challenge there is the players have to actually play better, and ideally the team gets enough shine that they're looking better too. And there's still plenty of time for that to be the case for Jordan Poole even this season. But it's looking harder. I mean, that is a ridiculous number that they're negative 21 with him on the floor. Now, the rest of the starters are worse, but he he is the worst even of those starters. And, In net rating. Yes. Amazingly, however, their starting lineup is only a negative 1.1. I was like, oh, let's see how bad their starting lineup is because all these guys are, are in really rough shape. Like those guys have played 348 possessions together. It's really when uh, I think some guys are out, like Gafford missed time, uh, for example. Well, Nate, the uh, truly but, great ensembles yeah. need to all be together to shine. And that's that's the starting lineup <laughs> for the 23-24 Washington Wizards. Oh, by the way, opponents are shooting 72% against the Wizards, second worst in the NBA ahead of only Dallas. Okay, well, let's... Uh... Let's talk about the end of, the, of their games. We talked about them on Friday and Kyle Kuzma's stylings uh, against the Bucks at the end of the game. Now, Kuzma was very good overall in this game uh, against the Hornets on Wednesday. And I thought he really brutalized Brandon Miller quite a bit in the post. Miller just wasn't quite strong enough to stay with him. Uh, late in the game, he, Kuzma was kind of their main option running pick and roll. He, he Miller was on him. Miller got obliterated by a screen. A screen and Kuzma is able to get to the elbow, kind of create space against Mark Williams and pull up for a jump shot. And also Kuzma even executed a two for one person perfectly he goes for a three off the dribble when the Wiz are down four. Uh, he had any, or excuse me, down three with 35 seconds left. So he gets the two for one there. He had an incredible block of a Mark Williams dunk after LaMelo mm. Ball got to the basket and he dropped it off to Mark Williams and Kuzma came from behind it. And Mark Williams kind of went for some style points uh, by cocking it back behind his head and Kuzma blocked him from behind. That that was impressive. And th- that shot over Mark Williams that I talked about tied it at 110. Then though, he just helped way off of Miles Bridges uh, for no real reason. Miles Bridges made it a three that put the Hornets up by three, uh, a lead that they would not relinquish uh, in the end. Wizards do go for the quick two and get it with 29.2 left down four. Foul Miles Bridges after that when they had actually had a five-second differential. Kuzma scores, and here's where it starts falling apart for him. He just, like, takes a foul on Miles Bridges in the backcourt. After one second, they had a 5.2 differential. They could have just played it out defensively. Like they got what they wanted. They got the two-for-one, and then he 
through his nice drive, and then he immediately ruins it by just taking a foul in the backcourt for no reason at all. But but then they kind of get bailed out because it's a, it's a two point lead. Then Bridges has a chance to make it four, but he only he splits the free throws. So there's still a one possession game with 28 seconds left. Yeah. Now I did like the way that West Unsold handled this. Right, like the, they went for the two for one with 35 left. They foul Mark Williams right when he gets uh, the defensive rebound. He only made one out of two. They get the two for one through Kuzma, and they still have. have now I'm pretty sure Wes Unsel didn't tell Kyle Kuzma to foul when they had a 5.2 differential, but then he draws up a play for a three, and you could tell that he told Daniel Gafford, like, hey, like, we're looking for a three here. Gafford slipped out of his screen, caught at the free throw line. He was looking to make the pass, and then at that point, just the Hornets also defended really well to take away the three and down three and so Gafford just went in for a dunk at that point with 18 seconds left but I thought the Hornets did a good job of protecting against the three but the Wiz were looking for it and then like if you're going to go for a quick two that's the one you take when you catch the ball at the free throw line you try to pass it to the outside nobody's there and so all right you can literally take one dribble and dunk with nobody around you like that's a quick two where the math actually is going to work out for you maybe a little bit more if it truly is you know a 95 percent proposition or better then they go for the trap immediately and Lamelo just made a, a nice play to spin out of it and uh, got a foul on Koulibaly but with 17 seconds left they make both free throws down three Wiz are out of timeouts and this was this play by Kuzma was just it was amazing it was just performance art I mean even probably even more so I would say than the one where he looked off Jordan Poole on the Bryce Drew play the next game against the Bucks. Yeah, because you're down 17 or you're down three with 17 seconds to go. One of the most important elements is to work quickly because you you you're no no guarantee that the first shot is going to go in and then if you you have to foul or you're going to try to try to get somebody else to survive. And the biggest the biggest point that bothered me in the beginning part of it was the lack of urgency from Mr. Kyle Kuzma. Yeah, he just he dribbled the ball up and they had a good plan. They were going to try to involve Lamelo in pick and roll and Kuzma just waves the screener away I think it was going to be pool just waves them away part of the reason to go fast as you mentioned is get your three up before it's late enough for them to foul right then Kuzma kind of fumbles it and then even still with 4.1 remaining he still just shoots like a 33 footer going left with a hand in his face he never got the ball he never passed it he didn't think about passing it and he never got the ball closer than 33 feet to the basket and then just launched it and it wasn't even close and and that was the game it was just maybe the worst possession in that situation that i can recall seeing he just i don't know why he went so slow i don't know why he waved away the screen i don't know why he then decided he was gonna still shoot too early anyway like he had more time to get a better shot it just was like those two brain farts in the last 30 seconds were just inexplicable they really Except are. Unless you, unless you want to try to explain it with some factor outside attempting to win the game. Sure. Um, but let's do the stats of the team that won this contest, the Charlotte Hornets. They are 5-10 and 10 on the season, 2-4 and four since the last 15-60. But their negative 7.4 net rating is 25th in the league, 17th in offense, 28th in defense. So now we have covered all three of the bottom three teams in defense right now. Um, projected to win 28 games, which would be 13th in the East, and they are not making the playoffs, and their hopes have gotten further negative damage because LaMelo Ball left their game on Sunday with a, uh, a, I believe they're calling it a strained right ankle. So yeah, which, which is weird nomenclature. Uh, and you know, you could you didn't get a great view of it on the camera, but he doesn't really like roll the ankle. 
I presume that it wasn't a typo since, you know, the T and the P are like pretty far away from each other on well, the keyboard. Yeah, the, potentially. And worth noting that Lamelo missed the last 19 games of last year due to a fractured right ankle. So this is the same yeah. ankle, uh, same ankle that was fractured. And the, the Hornets need him desperately to like maintain a semblance of offensive credibility, especially as they're dealing with other absences like Terry Rozier. Yeah. I, I, and Lamelo. He goes to the sideline here with pretty decent sets, 39% from three, 68% around the rim, which is a a massive improvement from what it had been. Now, his floater shooting uh, has not been amazing, but he pretty much has cut out the long twos completely. And given how difficult his shot diet is to be shooting 39% from three is really impressive. And he he was getting up 9.6 per 36 minutes and not getting to the foul line at all. A lot of turnovers, still maybe like a higher usage than you would prefer. You know, averaging 25 points a game. I don't think people necessarily thought he was going to shoot like that. I mean, he definitely had made some strides when you look at at his career numbers to be up to 49% from two now as well. And uh, the shot mix being better, this would have been a a career high in true shooting around average when you're considering, and he's doing most of that damage from the field, right? I mean, the biggest way for him to increase his efficiency at this point would have been more free throw drawing, which he has kind of really fallen off on. I thought he was going to be one of these guys who would like have a bunch of tricks early in his career. And then he just hasn't developed that. But yeah, now we await word on this strain. Maybe it'll be nothing. Uh, but you know, maybe it could be a, a tendon or or like a muscle in his foot or something. But you never, it didn't look good, right? Like he could not put any pressure on his foot at all. He, he had to be helped off, which doesn't make you feel like this is great. Uh, Miles Bridges was again. This is against the Washington Wizards. Not exactly a great defensive team, but he completely destroyed them. Eleven to sixteen yeah. from the field, got to the line a lot. Uh, you know, he had a really nice finish. He, he hit that three. He's been pr- very aggressive shooting the ball since he came back. He had a great drive down the lane off a closeout and just took off from the dotted line and extended and finished a- around Daniel Gafford off at two feet. Like he early returns are that he is going to be able to get back to the level that he was at before the injury, which of course it makes uh, many things uh, more complicated mm-hmm. there. But oh, and, I, I mean, and- he looks like he's still a really good basketball player. Something that may simplify things a bit for the Hornets. I was looking at their schedule for we don't know how long the Ball is going to be out, but they play at the New York City teams, the Knicks and the Nets, then host Minnesota and Miami twice. So Minnesota, then Miami, Miami, then finish out that homestand with the Pels and the Sixers and then have a, a short road trip. But basically they're playing playoff teams or close to it for most of the rest of 2023. So we don't know how long Lamelo is going to be out. My inclination is kind of like John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies that when he comes back, if it's more than a week, when he comes back, they're going to be far enough out. Not that they'll be like putting on the break, but they'll be far enough out that we'll be saying you know, it's unlikely that they'll make it back into the play-in mix. Uh, I mean, I would have said that right now, personally. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, but I'm but the other thing, you, but yeah. the other thing this matters about is for the in-season tournament, they play sure. at New York on Tuesday. They're not going to have Lamelo and all. Like they're not going to have. I don't know if that's official yet, but you would think so. Not going to have Terry Rozier. Like they're going to just be a disaster. And New York really needs to run up the score on them. Uh, and you know, because New York could actually win the group uh, by a point differential with the the Bucks uh, and the Heat slugging it on the other end. Or if the Bucks beat the Heat, then New York could put themselves in pretty decent position for the wild card, which. 
which I think they already actually lead in point differential anyway, right? So if LaMelo is going to be out, like that could actually swing New York making it into the quarterfinals of the wild card. It very well they should They should destroy that Hornets team if they're really trying. And at bare minimum, their target, but they should be blowing past this, is there is a chance that Orlando finishes second in their group and Orlando's at a plus 22. The Knicks are at a plus 18, which, as you mentioned, is the best of any two-in-one team right now in the Eastern Conference. There are teams that could surpass them, but if the Knicks put up a big number, it will be extremely difficult for anyone to do so. I can't wait until tomorrow. I'm really excited about it. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. A team that is less enthusiastic about the NBA Cup, the Chicago Bulls. The Bulls, 5-13 and 13 on the season, 1-6 and six since the last 1560. 23rd in net rating, 26th in offense, 22nd in defense. BPI projects them to finish with 30 wins, which would be 12th in the Eastern Conference. 0% odds of making the playoffs, which is unfairly negative, but still reasons to be there. Good news for the Bulls. They are third in forcing turnovers right now. And this is around the time that R squared gets over 0.5. We've talked about that at length in previous episodes. They were bottom 10 in the two seasons. Like, so in, in 2020-21 and 21-22, then they were sixth last year in forcing turnovers and third this year. Caruso is a big part of that, but they do have some other sharks within their within their back line, not really so much on their front line. And another place that we wanted to go was to follow up on what was that, what maybe the most jaw-dropping set from our last East 15 and 60, the Bulls giving up just the like blurst opponent location effective field goal percentage. And it's gotten better a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, they're now 27th in opponent location field goal percentage. That's just since that time. They're 27th since then. They're not right, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're 29th overall in the full season. We'll talk about the team that's behind them. Um, Since, since that last 1560, 39% of their opponent shots are threes including giving up the third most corner threes and Bulls opponents are taking 34 and a half percent of their attempts in the restricted area. So that's 74% of opponent shots coming either from three or the restricted area. I believe that was close to 80 the last time we did it. So an improvement, but not a dramatic one during just that time frame. Only the Hawks have opponents taking a smaller proportion of the shots as mid rangers and note that cleaning the glass as mid rangers includes 
includes the like floater range as well. Um, you know, so it's, they draw the lines a little differently than basketball reference does, but close enough. And the Hawks problem is very different. The Hawks aren't actually giving up that many threes, but Atlanta's opponents are taking 42% of their shots at the rim during the window since the last 15 60. That is wild. So over the full season, Bulls 29th in opponent effective field goal percentage. The Hawks are 30th, and that's not great for Chicago. They are still 22nd in defense, so they, they were able to overcome that in part by forcing a metric ton of turnovers, but it is still a concern. And I mean, it's just not working, obviously, with them being 5-13. and 13. They actually got off to a decent start. There's this like mystery of like, oh man, why why can't the Bulls get off to, to good starts? And, and they finally did. They went up 30-9, to nine, and then the next Nets opened the second quarter 27 to 5 and Casey Johnson had this stat that after the Nets outscored the Bulls 44 to 19 in the second quarter it marked only the second time since 1997 that an NBA team led by 20 or more in the first quarter and subsequently trailed by 10 or more in the second quarter. <laughs> Amazing. And it also yeah. looks like they're going to be, well, we don't know the timing, but Alex Russo has already missed um, some time with this strained left toe, which happened when Kobe White inadvertently stepped on his foot. He tried to play in their game on Friday, but he, he didn't play. And so Patrick Williams, triumphant, returned to the starting lineup and they as you mentioned lost yeah Patrick Williams did have three threes in that triumphant first quarter before uh the triumph ended rather quickly and I said hey well you know why can't they get off to good starts well they're ostensibly three best players Zach Levine DeMar DeRozan and Nikola Vucevic according to cleaning the glass in non-garbage time have a negative 15.8 net rating together the 106 on offense one 22 on defense Uh, that is very bad now part of that is opponent shooting and opponents are hitting 41 percent of their threes when that trio is on the floor but they're also shooting 68 percent at the rim and as you noted just for their entire team they just are not anywhere close to allowing the right shots when you're giving up a ton of threes and they're making a ton and you're giving up a ton of shots at the rim and they're making a ton defense probably not going to be too good but yeah i mean for that trio of all of these guys uh at one point at least all-star level of players nikola vucevic a common theme when he was re-signed was this guy is a huge regression candidate this year because a lot of his shot making was career high stuff in his early 30s that uh certainly has been the case so far he's down to 51 percent true shooting he's taking eight percent fewer of his shots from the three-point line which is a, a problem because they really need him to space the floor from the other these other guys and instead it's just been he's been standing inside the arc more than ever passing up shots from the perimeter more than ever not necessarily making the ones that, that he does take from out there and then defensively they've they've kind of now become who we thought they were when they first signed these guys through the guards like Lonzo and and Caruso and some of the other guys like Dasunmu and and other good defensive guards that they've had in there they've kind of managed to cobble it together defensively through the turnovers well now as you noted they're turning people over and they still can't stop anybody again part of that's maybe a little bit poor opponent shooting luck but they just uh, the shot mix that they're giving up is really bad and they just can't find a coverage really that works for Vucevic and he is an extremely proud player I think they're gonna if they actually are gonna like try to win a little bit they're gonna need to minimize his role like they're playing against a Brooklyn team that plays a lot of five out doesn't really play much of a backup center yesterday like he's just getting smoked 
On the perimeter, they're talking about communication issues. Vooch's quote was, even if we call out the wrong coverage, we still have to execute that coverage. That's not the sort of thing that you want to hear. And so, especially with Caruso missing time, like they have, I think they're going to really have no chance to stop anybody. Like I'm at the point, Danny, I think some people in Chicago are too, where it's just, you might as well just play Andre Drummond over Vooch because like his spacing and passing isn't really telling very much anymore. And he's pretty inefficient. So you're pretty much at the point where Andre Drummond is maybe about the same as him on offense. And at least like he'll generate some shots for his offensive rebounds. He can finish around the rim. Like he'll give you some rim protection, which Vooch is just, I thought he's had some good rim protecting moments relative to early in his career in Chicago, but that is kind of Wayne now. If he tries to get out on the floor defensively, they blow by him. If he's laying back, they can't really protect the rim. It's it's just been ugly. I mean, I think to me, if I'm saying, you know, other than obviously trade everyone, which uh, you know, that's what I would be doing and yes. would have done post haste. But if I'm like, all right, what is the one move I can make to just try to kind of jumpstart this team into respectability as a coach? I would just play Drummond more and Vucevic less and see if see if maybe that can kind of just like get you to be a little bit more of a normal team without like some of the massive weaknesses that Vucevic's strengths are not overcoming anymore, even at the level of like, you know, we used to be like, hey, he's, you know, he's not a guy who's going to get you deep into the playoffs, but like he can help you win regular season games. At this point, that hasn't even that last, last point hasn't been the case. It's true. And it does create some hard decisions because Vucevic, we talked when, when his contract happened, we're like, oh, maybe there'll be some team friendly elements towards the end of that contract because it was a three year deal. And no, it, it was not. It is a, um, you know, straight three years, 60 million in total ascending contract. So the Bulls didn't get any Wait of those. A That's a that was a three year deal. Three years, three years. I had in my head that it was two. I must have just like taken my sanity pills before I started this show. (laughs) No, it's three. And it's three fully guaranteed years, as far as we know. Unbelievable. Let's go north of the border to the Toronto Raptors. You want to give their stats? Raps are eight and nine, three and four since we last checked in on them. Negative 0.8 net rating is 20th in the NBA. They are 25th on offense, much below where they were a year ago, but they are also 10th on defense. So they're a little bit better than they were a year ago. Their, their overall net rating is a little bit worse than it was last year. Remember, they were kind of unlucky in terms of their point differential. Uh, they are projected to win 40 games per BPI. That would be the 11 seed and a 21% chance of the playoffs. So let's talk about uh, that offense and and you know there's a big talk like of all right half court offense versus full court and how much does forcing turnovers help that and but the big component obviously uh, of your overall offense is half court so how does that compare now since they've subbed in basically just Dennis Schroeder for Fred Van Vliet although they've got a full season of Jakob Pertl as well it looks awfully similar so last year the Raps were 25th in first shot half court offensive rating but they took the fewest proportion of their shots in the half court um, just under 76 percent that's fantastic so you get more than a quarter of your shots some other way and that could also be offensive rebounds everything else and and those were largely a continuation of the prior years they've been sixth or better in proportion to plays in the half court and they'd been sixth from the bottom or worse in half court offense each of the prior 
entire two years. Right now, 27th in half-court offensive rating and third in the proportion of their shots in the half-court. And honestly, being 27th in half-court offensive rating, considering they swapped Fred Van Vliet for Dennis Schroeder, isn't catastrophic for relative to my expectations. I mean, they got to me, they got worse offensively, and they're hovering it around the same place in terms of those constituent elements. Part of that, we already talked about Scotty Barnes in a previous 15 and 60 recent one. Um, he's ramping up his offensive role, as had is currently having a career high in true shooting, though we're 17 games in not going to say that's going to be how it is the whole season so instead i wanted to turn my focus to a couple different things but one of them is dennis Schroeder. he's having a good start to the year for the reps uh 57 true shooting on a respectable 23 usage higher assist rate than he had since his highest since his last full season in atlanta so he's really running the show like this is closer to that than some of the roles that Schroeder had particularly on the lakers where he's playing at times alongside lebron james who is a much better offensive player Shooter, not too far above his three-point averages career-wise, but 52% on twos would be a career high, slightly above over 51%, and his free throw attempt rate is largely aligned. So, like, Shooter's having a—he's having a good version— of the kind of season that he that he had had previously and yeah I'm, like pro- probably his high watermark was maybe that uh that six man of the year season in okc what that would have been 2020 i suppose yeah i believe so, so yeah th- that got the lakers to to trade for him and when shooters on the floor the raptors have a 94 first shot f-court offense rating that's bull average but not horrible it does drop to a horrible 85.2 when he sits and there's a big disparity I was I started doing some on off split stuff with the Raps. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, what's going on there? And I'm like, oh, man, I thought Siakam could take over those minutes. He has when Siakam has been on the floor in the non shooter minutes. The offense has been great. Siakam has been great, but that is only a portion of it. And it is the remaining the non Siakam non shooter minutes are an absolute disaster. About a 102 all offensive ratings that includes transition, includes everything else and a negative 13 net rating. Main creators in those lineups have been Scotty Barnes and Malachi Flynn. Doesn't help that the Raps are shooting 34% from three of those minutes, but they're pretty bad at almost everything else offensively during those stretches. So I'm not going to lay it all on on the feet of Barnes and Flynn. And Schroeder having this good of a year, you know, has he given them quite as much as Fred Van Vliet did last year because of the spacing that Van Vliet brings and uh, the pace and, you know, he's a better passer than Schroeder? Like, no, he's not. But considering the price tag, like, it's it's a reasonable facsimile. And I think we thought that the Lakers, and the Lakers themselves certainly thought this because you would think if they had offered Schroeder the contract they offered Gabe Vincent, he probably would still be in LA. They felt like Gabe Vincent was going to be an upgrade on him. We thought that now Gabe Vincent has been injured and it looks like he's uh, dealing with the knee soreness that's going to keep him out for a bit longer with the having received this PRP injection. But Vincent, you know, we thought, all right, he was more of an off the ball guy, maybe kind of a wash defensively. But I think actually the Lakers have missed Schroeder's drive game some. Uh, and again, we don't know what Vincent would be giving them because he's been out. But Schroeder is, uh, as a very reliable health record overall. So, yeah, I think the Lakers uh, have missed Schroeder quite a bit. And now with the Raptors, he's, I mean, I think one of the bigger things is just that he's shooting more and, and he's been reasonably effective there. So the, really good signing uh, by Toronto. And I don't know if he can continue playing like this, but it, it's really, what, what a weird journey it's been for Schroeder. I think our perceptions of him have probably, and the league's perception of him have vacillated far more than like the actual player that he's been sure. overall this time, Very right? Cool. Like if he was, if he was having this, I mean, right. It was, it was only what? 
two, three years ago. He's not that old that he had that six man of the year. So if he, you just say, all right, no, now the Raptors sign him to be the starting point guard and he's going to go through it and have this season. Like that wouldn't be surprising, but he's had such a, an itinerant journey in between then that, and you know, he's always played well internationally as well during this period. So I think it's just, it's been kind of his role and his confidence and obviously the drama around his contracts that maybe have changed our opinion of him more than should have been deserved, both for good or for ill over the year. Two other threads I want to pull on a little bit for the Raptors. Um, they've gotten more from Malachi Flynn than I expected. He's playing 17 minutes a game in a pretty consistent role, averaging five assists per 36, not a full-time playmaker, but a sizable chunk. And in terms of individual offense, by far the most effective season of Flynn's career, his prior best was 49% true shooting. He's sitting at 56% right now. And 37% on threes is nice. He's actually taking fewer than other seasons, but a big change is going from 41% on twos overall, 37% last year to 53%. More shots in the restricted area, fewer long twos, but big but, two of them. 62% on floaters for Flynn is totally unsustainable, and that the offense has still been bad in his minutes. I brought that up, the non the non Schroeder, non-Siaka minutes. Like Flynn is a large part of that. That's part of why EPM still super skeptical on him and then the last thing i wanted to do with the rap snate is i pulled up the synergy play type data for the beginning of this season and last year under nurse so kind of the split of rayakovich and nurse is there anything that stands out to you the one for me for proportion is that last year 22 percent roughly of the raptors possessions ended with a spot up and this year that's up to 26.2 so they're they're kind of they're they're ending more possessions and like a jump shooter they don't have great shooters like they they've been better this year than last year relative but still well below average every Everything else, like in terms of play types, like I don't see much that's like dramatically different. Well, the spot ups uh, are big because they just have emphasized more ball movement. And perhaps that's yeah. some of that is ball movement for the sake of ball movement. You know, they're at, at the top of the league in terms of passes per game in the new offense that's been implemented. And so generally you are going to create more spots. And that's a good thing. Like You're generally going to get more efficiency out of the team created stuff than the self-created stuff and you know they're down a little bit in terms of the their isolation frequency they're down in pick and roll ball handler frequency which makes sense you know, fred van vliet was their best pick and roll ball handler he's gone now they're i think the other thing that really stands out to me is just that they are way less efficient in transition they're running about the same percentage of the time at least in terms of their overall play types but they average 1.3 per possession last year in transition oh no excuse me actually uh that font is too small they're actually <laughs> averaging about the same so never mind. <laughs> I, I was going to say maybe that's what why their their offense is worse this year. But yeah, I'm, I'm also surprised that I, I mean I guess maybe because they're doing less pick and roll, the pick and roll roll man numbers are lower. But with a full year of Pirtle, that was part of the reason they essentially brought in Pirtle is to get more roll man stuff. Maybe they're hitting the roll man more overall as a percentage of their pick and rolls, just not having a, as many pick and rolls uh as they have before and they're doing a little bit more stuff coming off a screen a little more handoffs so all kind of hallmarks of additional ball movements and like you noted to be about the same as they were in half court offense last year is pretty decent given yeah. the, the personnel losses bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the u.s economy in 2022 investments like acquiring america's largest biogas producer Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Let's stay in the Atlantic Division with the New York Knicks. They're 9-7 and seven on the year, 4-2 and two since last 1560. 10th in net rating, plus 4.1. 11th in offense, 7th in defense. The Knicks are projected by BPI to finish with 45 wins, which will be 6th in the East, and a 66% chance of making the playoffs. And to follow up on something from the last 1560, one of the other jaw-dropping stats was the Knicks being unbelievably horrendous, converting shots around the basket. Since that 15-60 and 60 recording, the Knicks are converting 61.5% of their shots around the rim. That is 24th in the NBA. So they're still last over the full season, counting in the earlier sample at 57.4%. But they're slowly, slowly, slowly getting back to the pack at, bare, at, at, at the bare minimum. Yeah, and they should probably, they'll at least end up not being you know, the worst rim shooting team over the last 15 years, which is what they were on pace for uh, by quite a bit. They lost one at home against Phoenix, uh, had that nice win against the Heat, but played another close one against Phoenix, and they largely defended Devin Booker pretty well. R.J. Barrett was the main man there. Booker was only not out of 24, but he hit the game winner, which I want to talk about a, a little bit. The big problem for the Knicks during the game was for a Phoenix team that isn't exactly known for like their being the brute squad, they got out-rebounded, out-hustled throughout most of the game. Now, down the end of the game, it was Emmanuel Quickly, Jalen Brunson, R.J. Barrett, Julius Randle, Mitchell Robinson. So that Quickly Brunson group, that's it. that is very small on the defensive end. That's probably, I would say, their best offensive group. Uh, now, what, one of the plays that was pretty noteworthy was in transition, Mitchell Robinson got switched out on the perimeter and then booker got the ball on the weak side as barrett tried to deny him booker went back door and you know it's emmanuel quickly coming over to like try to block his shot or disrupt they just didn't have really any help defense at the rim outside of julius Randle. that's not really going to be the case in a lot of their lineups uh this was hilarious danny mitchell robinson is shooting 37 percent from the foul line although i will say at least aesthetically like his free throw like actually looks okay it just really just really doesn't, doesn't go, in. go in so he misses two and then frank vogel's like oh there's still two minutes and 14 seconds remaining in the game up until two minutes you're allowed to foul so he directs jordan goodwin to run over and foul mitchell robinson when he gets the ball after a defensive rebound but the other thing that you still have up until the last two minutes of the game is the transition take foul yeah <laughs> and frank vogel was a gasoline no that's exactly right like he out like mitchell robinson outletted the ball 
the rule is basically if you're still making steady progress up the court and you take a foul intentionally, like it's a transition take foul. And so that, that could actually be a pretty good way to try to avoid hackers, even if it, you know, during more of the meat of the quarter. But uh, so Robinson, the foul ended up not counting. Jalen Brunson actually missed the free throw, which uh, would actually really hurt them in the end. But they got to retain possession there. Another thing that I thought Tom Thibodeau messed up was, I, I believe this was an intentional foul. I'm not sure Mike Breen said it was on the broadcast. So I'll, I'll take his word for it that rj barrett took a foul with 118 left when they weren't in the bonus to get mitchell robinson back in for isaiah hartenstein because they had taken him out to prevent the hacka and but then later on about 20 seconds later they commit a loose ball foul on devin booker and give up free throws that lets phoenix go up four with under a minute to go so that i I thought that the i don't think that the difference between hartenstein and mitchell robinson particularly because you might have had a stoppage at another time is worth giving up that foul to where you're then going to be in the bonus later on so i that that i thought was a tactical mistake maybe even a tactical mistake to take robinson out frankly after the transition take foul when you consider that was 214 left so there wasn't really much of a window yeah they would have wasted probably one more defense or offensive possession with the foul um and well, you might and also exa- honestly and like and that's give it, the guy. That's exactly yeah. why you do hack up. Remember the whole the the real goal yeah. of it is is to get the player off the floor, not to have some bad offensive possessions for your opponent. Yeah. So, uh, uh, apologies for derailing your train of thought. Uh, no, that's that's okay. Well, that's the first time that's ever happened on this program. <laughs> what did i apologize for it <laughs> no no that someone has derailed someone else's train of thought because i because i do that to you all the time um so now with mitchell robinson back in they're down four another tom thibodeau special is taking the time out when something bad happens under three minutes but when you're not actually gaining an advantage from the timeout so he uses one of their timeouts with 118 left after those two Brooker free throws on the loose ball foul. They get penetration, swing it to Emmanuel quickly, and he misses a floater, but Yusuf Nurkic crashes into him after he's already released. Nurkic didn't exactly cover himself in glory. Defensively, great Knicks defense. They get into him and force a shot clock violation. They the big strategic fulcrum was what are they going to do with Devin Booker? Are they going to double team him? They go after Brunson and pick and roll double team. Jordan Goodwin drives the basket. Brunson makes a great play off the double team to get back into it and bother Goodwin. He passes off to Yusuf Nurkic and Yusuf Nurkic is scared to shoot it and ends up being basically causing the shot clock violation. The Knicks then tried to get the two for one with 41 seconds left and it was just really good defense by the Suns to prevent Brunson from getting a shot off. Then finally Brunson attacks Nurkic and pick and roll again and is able to kind of get him backpedaling hits the jumper from the foul line to tie it at 113 and so then this was just a fascinating last possession of the game and i thought tom thibodeau had a very interesting plan apparently the suns also had a very interesting plan based on, on what was said after the game so of course what you like you'd like to be able to do is have devin booker just dribble the air out of the ball with the game tied and just take the last shot and so the knicks are like okay we're not going to do that but we want him to run a bunch of time off first before they can kind of get something else beyond us. Maybe, what do you think, Danny, of just saying, no, we're going to like hard double team Devin Booker right away with 21 seconds left in the game? Because we've seen teams, like I, I praise Mark Dagnall for doing that at the end of the 
uh, at the end of the quarter, uh, like just a regular quarter uh, against Golden State. You have the balls to try something like that? I think you could do a hard double quickly and then try to do have a single player ball deny after. But I, it, you're conceding a lot, even if the team is as limited as the non-KD, non-Beal Suns are. I think it's it, as long as you, unless you can prevent that pass from coming out, and I don't think you can. Yeah, and some of it is the idea is okay number one you get the ball out of the guy's hands but number two you make him go early and and then you can you would get a chance to come back and potentially score i I do think it changes a little bit though when it's so much about just not letting them score at all rather than like the total number of points that scored where it's like oh yeah we will get another possession at the end i mean maybe this is foolish of me to say that hey why if you're trying to maximize your number of points why should it matter whether it's the end of the fourth quarter or it's the end of the first quarter i think part of it too is just that coming out of a timeout like teams are kind of more ready to attack in that situation too where if it's just sort of ah, this is just some run-of-the-mill end of the first quarter lineup and like the only guy out there is chris paul and we'll just double team him and like see if we can force a turnover or i think and also frankly it's like hey if you try that and it doesn't work and you just give up an easy layup off the double team you're better off like because what you gain by waiting is well hey maybe when you go double team they don't have enough time to actually take advantage of it whereas if you go do it at 21 then they clearly will have time like the 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 clock is not necessarily your friend but then you also lose the ability to maybe get a stop and get the ball back for yourself anyway the plan for the knicks was we're going to double team with about nine seconds left but they kind of like didn't really double team it seemed like they kind of just were trying to show to get booker to give the ball up but what they had is quickly comes over one pass away from the left side of the floor and it seemed clear that what they were going to do was quickly is going to run over there and then he was gonna you know kind of leaving over open the guy one pass away i think it was goodwin who had had a really nice game but also is like you know not a guy that you think is going to take that last shot so he leaves goodwin trying to get booker to throw it to goodwin but everyone rotates over like julius randall rotates one pass away onto goodwin quickly runs all the way to the opposite corner after double team. like they clearly sort of had like executed like predetermined like what their rotations were going to be out of it mm-hmm. and it really was more i think just kind of like token pressure to just fool booker into thinking there was a double team however apparently the suns their plan was for booker to give it up and get it back and that's where rj barrett i thought really didn't execute he just kind of l- didn't really try to deny booker that much and booker got the ball back and then julius randall was on goodwin on the handback and i thought randall just wasn't aggressive enough and booker said his quote after the game was yeah if i'm going to my right i kind of have the ball on my right i feel like i can rise up over anyone and this is we were talking about this yesterday where you there's just there's a contest that like looks good on the stat sheet and then there's the contest that actually disrupts the player and sure. randall i'm sure he was worried about following but his effect his contest i think was not effective you know tom was like hey you know we live with that shot at the end and like you know i thought the strategy was good i just didn't think I thought Randall was like a little bit too calibrated towards the not fouling standpoint where Booker basically was able to take the same shot he would have taken in an empty gym, even though, you know, there were two guys on him. Let's head now to the Detroit Pistons. They have lost 13 straight. That means they are 0-5 since we last checked in on them. 2-14 and overall. I will make the same (laughs) surprised exclamation that they actually started this season two and one negative 8.8 net rating is 27th in the nba 27th on offense 24th on defense they project for the 15 seed still 23 wins according to bpi zero percent yeah, chance yeah i don't see that the playoffs no no uh this i thought was crazy they had the lowest 
opponent turnover rate in the NBA. Yeah. And like, they, this were, is they, a were, yeah. they were, yeah, they, you know, money Williams wanted to start with defense. They have, they were 19th last year and eighth the year before that. And they're dead last this year. No, it is pretty remarkable that, you know, they're starting a star Thompson who's been really good. And they're starting K like they're going with this absolutely zero spacing lineup in part to boost the defense and they're 24th on defense, right? I mean, you would think kind of the formula they're going for is a little bit kind of Orlando magic style, or maybe kind of more what we thought the magic would be, but yeah, neither end of it is working right now. So they are getting some returns here. How is that going to change things? We're going to have to find out. So Dern has already returned. Bogdanovich is close. Isaiah Livers is around. So really the only big lingering absence for the Pistons is Monte Morris. He's now going to be out for looks like the rest of, of 2023. And we don't know beyond that. So for the like we could we could take Morris out for now, which of course was not the plan, but we could say that Monty Williams has his close to his normal compliment coming soon. Bojanovic, I think it'll be this week that he returns and it may even be early this week, depending I haven't seen any specific reporting. And so now we get to learn a lot more about what Monty Williams is actually prioritizing. And it's also different to evaluate it now versus the beginning of the season because they've lost 13 straight, they're two and fourteen. And so what I want to see are three big factors who starts who gets excised from the rotation so if you're bringing in Bogdanovich depending on what happens with livers potentially he's going to be more of a part of it and then how those changes plus just how Kate Cunningham plays overall how all that affects Kate because hopefully 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 we're getting closer to a viable offensive group around Kate Cunningham so that we can get a better sense of what kind of player he is right now I'm not talking about what player he's going to be but just what kind of player he is right now yeah I mean who are they going to start now I I, let's start with this who would you start with Bogdanovich back I would start Bogdanovich at the four, whatever five you like best. For me, that would probably be Isaiah Stewart. But if you want to go with Durin, I'm, I'm, I have no real opposition to that. Then you have Cade, Asar, and um, at the one, you can make a very good argument for Sasser. But I would say I would go Sasser one, Ivy two, Killian Hayes, not in the rotation. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I could see starting with Stewart at the four. You can't take your best shooter out, obviously, Danny. Well, you're replacing your best <laughs> shooter with a better shooter. Yeah, and, and Durin, I think should start because uh he's just i mean he might be their best prospect like he was playing really well like, i got i don't think it's uh, that that's just uh, i mean they're not going anywhere this year so i obviously we're talking a little bit about trying to win games and, and be more respectable but yeah you don't take jalen Duran out of the starting lineup so i'd probably go bogdanovich at the three and then i mean i think they're also like what asar thompson is bringing them maybe you'd put him at the two and, and let him the one yeah and and at the one and maybe even have a star thompson like get some more ball handling responsibilities up top but you know star is really struggling from through and he's a whole nother level as a poor shooter beyond killian hayes but i wouldn't wouldn't be too high in killian hayes i mean there's still Jaden ivy has not been bad you know it seems like there there's maybe some message sending involved in the number five overall pick from last year not starting i think that's part of it and I mean, he is has taken a step forward on offense so far. I'm guessing they're going to bring Boyan off the bench, certainly at the beginning, particularly because he'll be in a minutes limit with the calf. He's older. At some point, though, I think you need to start him just to, like, let's see if he can get close to last year and then we can trade him for something. Uh, but, but, but enough of all these terrible players who've gotten the Pistons to 2-14. and 14. Let's talk about the guy who has the best net rating by far of 
any player in the Pistons rotation. And that is Marvin Bagley the third. Bagley is having by far the best offensive stretch, at least that I can think of in his career right now. 65% true shooting on 21 usage when his previous career high in true shooting is 59%. So he's well above that. And how that's happening is a really fascinating part of this story. Bagley has basically cut out three pointers. He was taken two and a half, three per 36. Now that's down to half a three per 36 this year, five total in 308 minutes. In one sense, that's a good thing because Bagley is a career 29% three-point shooter who made 26% over the last two years combined. So taking out threes when you're missing all of them, pretty good thing. Problem is that if you're kind of running a normal offense that has a ton of negative consequences, particularly for other teams, pick up on it. So it's a it's a double-edged sword. The positive is that you're taking out inefficient shots. The negative is that you become easier to defend. But there are two truly encouraging things that are driving Bagley's efficiency. One is that he's getting to the line more. Free throw attempt rate is up to five per 36, which is the best since his rookie year and a significant jump over recent seasons. Bagley also in a small sample size shooting 91% from the line. So he's getting there. He's making them. But the big one for me is Marvin Bagley's shot distribution. I talked about how he's basically taking the threes out. Those were 17% of his shots last year. And going, okay, you take 17% of your shots. So really we're taking 13 out of the sample. Where are those going? And the fear would always be that you're converting threes to long twos. No, in fact, you are not. They're con- he's converting almost all of those to shots around the rim. He's taking 20, 20% more of his attempts in the restricted area, all the way up to 49%. A full 18% of every attempt that Marvin Bagley has taken this year has been a dunk. And for a guy who was over 20 usage, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And let's keep in mind, too, that Bagley, he struggled with, with some health issues uh, over sure. the years. Some of it's the hand, but you know, there, there's been other lower body stuff uh, as well. And uh, I think the fact that he has been able to play, I think he's played in every game. And he, I don't recall seeing him on the injury report. You know, I think that sometimes you kind of forget with young guys who stall out that, I mean, not that Marvin Bagley's on his way to being a superstar or anything, but with young guys who stall out, that perhaps they just have struggled with injuries and like just having their body feel better it can be a, a big part of like making a guy a viable rotation player versus not. For sure. And Bagley becoming a more efficient player, there's something that could be useful for the Detroit Pistons. But there are a couple other important things to note here. So one is Bagley's role within this team. So he has played almost entirely next to Isaiah Stewart as his front court partner or someone smaller. They have not played Bagley and Duran together at all. And they've almost yeah. never played Bagley and Wiseman together, um, in part because Wiseman's role in the rotation has been limited. So that means you can make an argument for whether Stewart or or Bagley is better as the as the five, as the rim protector, however we're defining roles here. But the Pistons defense has been pretty terrible when he's been on the floor. And EPM puts a lot of that blame at Bagley's feet. Negative 2.2 D EPM is by far the worst of his career. And it, he is not a player that D, D EPM ever liked in the first place. So you have that. But the data point going the other way. Our buddy Seth Partner's rim protection metric has Marvin Bagley 16th in RP wins this year. Some of that seems like a position bonus. Um, Seth hasn't. Are, are, are we sure stuff still works for us? Should, should we should we find someone else to do our do our analytics? That that that's, that can't be right. There's no way. <laughs> Probation. We'll, we'll, we'll say pro- probation <laughs> is is the path there. But Bagley, like that's that's a positive, and like he's contesting about thirty four percent of shots, and then opponents are making. 57% when he's in the restricted area. You're not seeing a lot of the like wild on off splits, like, oh, teams are shooting 
terrible at the rim when he's out there and great when he's not or anything like that. But good to see that as a positive. And just for funsies, the only players that Seth's position, like, you know, accounting for how he defines positions that are not centers who are stronger right now in RP wins as of when I pulled this, which I think was Sunday morning, Evan Mobley, who's number one, Cade Cunningham, Asar Thompson. So two other Pistons teammates. Yeah. And, and worth noting that Seth gives a big boost to guys who protect the rim at other positions other than center because it's comparing them. And he's got Bagley as a forward. So I think that's that's part of why it is. He, he's bumped up. Not to say that he's not having a good a, an improved rim protecting season, but he's exactly. also I don't I, like to be clear. Seth is not calling him the you know whatever it is 16th best rim protector in the nba absolutely and so that is um and then the other ones just briefly tory craig scotty barnes sam hauser Zaire Williams, John Collins, and that and that's that that's just the players who who the rim protection metrics don't have as a center. So the good news for Bagley is he's having this good offensive season. The bad news is you're kind of running into an ex- more extreme version of what I've at times called the John Collins problem, which is he's good at certain things, but isn't good enough defensively to be your five. And if he's not good enough to be your five, then what the hell is he? But Collins is good enough at the four stuff to be a four. I, I think he might be reaching a point at which he's like could be good enough defensively to be your backup. Backup five. Yeah. Well, and let, actually, quickly, just to compare, again, last year he wasn't quite in the same role, but he's contesting 33% of opponent shots around the rim. That's up from 23% last year, and opponents shooting 57%, which is kind of about average for a center. Uh, last year, though, opponents shot 64% uh, around the rim when he, he was there, and also opponents just generally are shooting much worse when he's on the floor. Now, again, if he's playing with a steward, he's playing with a top and like that that's going to help there too but at least he has moved to the point where he's not like a massive liability in that role at least so far right and so for Bagley the idea that he could be in a rotation like he that is better than he has been at times though he has a fully guaranteed 12.5 million for next year so the if we're going to relitigate the contract which I don't think we need to but good for him that he's having these other successes stay in the central division with the Cleveland Cavaliers they are a disappointing but understandable nine and eight on the season five and three since the last 1560 in net rating negative 1.3 per possessions 24th on offense 11th on defense bpi projects them to finish as the sixth seed with 45 wins gives them a 71 percent chance of making the playoffs and there there are a couple different stories to talk about with the Cavs, but one of them is the idea of like how often have they been healthy and how have the healthy lineups looked yeah I and mean, just not that often uh, is uh, the answer to your first question there and it just it feels like these guys season like hasn't started yet and maybe there's a little bit of that same kind of feeling with them as with boston where although i think they are not as talented as boston with their big four as boston is with their big five but you still kind of feel like hey if one of these guys is out this isn't the real cavaliers not the odds are in an a2 game nba season where the games come fast and furious you know what percentage of your games can you expect to have all of those big four available even if they are all relatively young guys yeah maybe that's something to think about in terms of team building if you are reliant on all those guys but of course jared allen missed you know about the first 10 games uh, or so and donovan mitchell has been in and out uh, with this hamstring and darius garland has had various ailments uh, as well now Coming into last night's game, I compiled these uh, on Saturday. They only had 163 possessions with the big four on the floor. And they're a minus seven with that group. Opponents are shooting, or I'm sorry, they are shooting 39% from three. But interesting that they are not generating any threes right now. Mm. And 
you would think that they would be, right? I mean, you've got two off-the-dribble snipers with Garland and Mitchell, and now they just added Max Struess, who's like a movement shooter who is supposed to open things up. Remember, it was Okoro or Levert starting in that spot most of last year when that quartet was pretty dominant. So they're only taking 25% of their shots from three, which is a very low number, right, in today's day and age, and also generating very few corner threes. I think part of that is just it's hard to generate corner threes when your four and your five don't shoot them at all right if you think about okay garland and mitchell those guys aren't necessarily going to be in the corner right they're going to be in a position where they can at least come get a handoff or they'll you know make a guard to guard pass and then Struce, he's going to be going to be maybe coming off a handoff like you don't necessarily want to just dump him in the corner if you have these two bigs you probably just for spacing purposes you want to have the gravity of Struce or garland or mitchell have most of those guys like more around the arc because if you put another guy in the corner and you've got the two bigs who aren't shooters now like it's easier for someone to get from the corner to the rim than maybe from the wing and so when you, it's hard to generate a ton of corner threes now they used to do it because Isaac Okoro couldn't stand anywhere else and actually make a three so I, I don't know what to make of the fact that they're not generating any corner threes it does kind of make some sense to me when you think about the games like, like Struce he's like where, almost where, like too where good the, to yeah. be a corner three guy I'm sorry yeah like where they want to be on the floor yeah so They've really struggled when Donovan Mitchell hasn't been available, plus 5.9 with him on the floor, negative 10.8 with him off, and Struess, very similar differential. The big difference there is that without Mitchell, they haven't been able to score. Now, some of that is that Garland hasn't played in some of those games. They are 7-3 and three when Darius Garland is available. They toughed out a victory over Toronto yesterday in what was kind of a bloodbath uh in terms of the their defense where they're really supposed to be awesome with this group opponents are shooting 59 percent at the rim that's excellent uh you know the worst team in the league as i mentioned offensively last year shot 62 percent at the rim so if they're holding opponents to 59 percent at the rim with that group that's exactly what's supposed to be happening there opponents are shooting 39.4 percent from three that will probably normalize at least some but the one thing that i was a little more concerned by is that they are allowing a lot of opponent shots at the room and that's great if you are preventing them from making those but still there's even 59 percent if you're giving up more shots at a 59 percent rate it kind of doesn't matter that it's 59 percent rather than 64 percent there's still better shots yes exactly exactly so there are some reasons as you look at the statistical record uh and that that is just their overall by the way is 59 percent at the rim with with the big four on the floor uh opponents are actually shooting much better which is is a little odd uh again i think that's probably a a small sample size issue but we've reached the point at where you know like we talked about with orlando yesterday like okay is it is there anything in the statistical profile that makes you think like okay this isn't real and with orlando the answer was no and here there isn't anything other than maybe hot opponent three-point shooting that makes me think like oh yeah if the Cavs just keep playing the same way that they're playing that they're going to get better like they just need to get healthier and the the players who are out there need to play better i think they're capable of that but we're also now almost a quarter of the way through the season where neither of those things uh, has happened and they're nine and eight still one other player who needs to bounce back for the Cavs is george niang the minivan has been having some let's call them transmission issues 61 percent true shooting last year 52 percent this year in part because that consistent 40 percent three-point shooters down to 36 and in part because he's been incredibly over 50 percent on twos almost every year including both of the philly seasons 
45% this year. So he's taking a lot of mid-rangers, like not around the basket. Those aren't really going in, not making the threes. And so I I haven't seen anything from Niang to make me believe that he is a fundamentally different or worse player than he was in Philly. But they need that version of Niang because they're, the, the Cavs don't have that many other options who do things like he does, especially if Dean Wade is having trouble like he has at times too. Let's finish up with Philly. Let's do it. The Philadelphia 76ers, of course, one of the league's better stories overall this year. 11 and 5, though they are 3 and 4 since the last 1560. 5th in net rating plus 7.3, 3rd on offense 14th on defense. BPI optimistic. 55 wins would be second in the Eastern Conference and gives them a 100% chance of making the postseason. Yeah, I I've, I think I'm more a fan of 538's projections and BPI. RIP to those. Hopefully Nate Silver can get us back with a look at those soon. But yeah, 100% chance to play us. Like, I mean, there's not a 100% chance that Joel Embiid is going to play 40 more games this season, right? Like, so I, I think like you just need to be a little bit less certain than that, just simply accounting for injuries. Like, yes, I would, if, if they stay relatively healthy, I would put it at 100% or close to it as well. Not shooting 100% is Jaden Springer. And he does do more stuff than some of the other guys that they've had available. We'll talk about how little crazily some of the other guys they've had available have actually been doing. Uh, but and let's start with Springer's defense. You know, he has a reputation as a defensive guard, kind of a six three or so fire plug, but six eight wingspan, pretty strong, so he can maybe guard up a, a little bit in the post. As I watched his defensive film, though, I have to say I was a little bit disappointed. Like, he is amazing getting over a screen, right, in conventional pick-and-roll defense. And that's quite important, of course, uh, when you have Joel Embiid behind you, though he's not going to play as many minutes with Embiid given his bench role. However, I, I was disappointed by the way he guards in isolation. Like, he got his ankles broken, like, a number of times where, and he doesn't quite have like the length to really like swallow guys up and he wasn't able to get into guys enough to use his strength without fouling on the perimeter so he's sort of he's like in a stance he's not really forcing a guy one way or another and so that leads to a lot of times where a guy gets going one way and then like crosses over and kind of breaks his ankles because there's too much space in between them like you really even if the guy is not an an amazing shooter if you don't have great length like you need to get into the ball in today's nba and maybe you'll give up a drive but you'll you know which way he's going you're keeping your body on him and then when the help comes it's kind of trap in the box you're forcing a double team if you're going to give space and you don't have great length like you're going to be dead no matter how quick you are and i don't know if he is has like the absolute quickest change of direction i think it's more kind of getting skinny using his strength getting over screens that's his big forte on defense and then offensively i mean when you look at some of seth's stats it's just been really ugly, but it's been really ugly for a lot of, of these Sixers support players, uh, particularly of late. It's pretty jaw-dropping. And I mean, one one other kind of way that I'd like to describe this is you could stratify players by basketball reference usage in terms of like super low, which is I would say 10% or less is just like soup, like just like a teeny tiny part of the offense. The Sixers intended rotation has two sub 10 usage guys, Nikola Batum, who, I mean, I, first of all, I think he can have a larger role within the offense than that. And he's been really efficient since he transitioned to the Sixers and Patrick Beverly. 
Patrick Beverly at 9% basketball reference usage so far. Yeah, and and they really have missed Kelly Oubre so much. And, you know, he is apparently back at practice. I don't know when he's going to be able to return, but just as like someone who can do something. Right. And they're trying to get to this offense now where a lot of Maxi and Embiid interacting and Embiid, his his usage certainly covers up a lot of deficiencies, particularly during the regular season. But if they want to make noise in the playoffs, like they have to upgrade some of these spots like Patrick Beverly is passing up so many wide open threes when he's out there. And at times they've needed him, right? They've needed him to guard the opponent's best player. I mean, he's not an amazing option there at that point, but when it's, you know, it's not going to be Tyrese Maxey. So who else is it? Who's going to like get over a screen at the point of attack and get into guys a little bit. But yeah, I mean, to be 9% usage and uh, I mean, Danny, Patrick Beverly has made one more three pointer on the year for the Sixers than PJ Tucker has. Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) He's He's made threes, three, 22 and tucker tucker was two of five um you know marcus morris has been he's back in philly now he said the same thing as james harden which made me laugh and just like oh yeah you know i didn't have a training camp it's like well like no one was stopping you from going going into camp yeah like, like, I, but nobody even knew that he was going to be a part of the harden trade he always made sense as a possibility but like yeah but but like he was it was always just weird to me that like he for because he's a proud guy he just like earned the right to like sulk and not try as soon as he wasn't starting anymore okay i guess so uh, it's just because he's like such an asshole that we're just gonna like uh, forget that he's even on the team like you, you're not like still getting paid 60 million dollars this season to like stay in shape and like be ready if you're called on because like you used to start and you get angry sometimes <laughs> like okay but, but like how does he like not get held to like a professional standard uh, that way uh especially when so, if he yeah. were at that standard he'd be helping them right now yeah now one thing that was surprising to me is that tobias harris still is only at 19 percent usage and i just think they should find a way to use him more and whether that's coming off of these Embiid handoffs or getting into the post against smaller players like i i think particularly the way that maxi is shooting the ball i would love to see you know some plays where maxi screens for like put Embiid at the top have maxi screen for tobias harris out of the corner and like then harris can kind of try to get down into the post against a smaller player then uh, maxi can maybe pop up for a handoff afterwards i think there still are too many times even now like for tobias harris with james harden gone and to still and like he's someone who can like caught like he's not going to be guarded by someone who's that good most of the time he can cause some mismatch problems like yeah all right he's not gonna get to the following he won't be incredibly efficient but he at least can be someone else that the defense needs to account for and so yeah for him to be below 20 percent usage is really surprising to me at this point in time all right then i, I think we're good let's uh Let's pack it in. Hopefully you'll join us on the NBA strategy stream tonight, Utah and New Orleans. And then, of course, tomorrow on Playback, just watch the Twitter account at NateDuncanMVA. By the way, if you're not enjoying the new Twitter algorithm, you can always just follow a list and that will make sure that you see every tweet on that list. I actually have a list called Essential Basketball, which is the people that I look at every tweet of. So that that might be a decent way to enjoy Twitter, not come across a bunch of fluff that the algorithm wants to show you and still really see great content and see, obviously, uh, all of mine. Dan 
tweets as well. Not that you ever tweet anymore, but that's okay. It, it's uh, you don't have as many takes as I do that you just have to get off. Uh, all right, that, that'll do it. Yet another amazing outro. That's what you guys subscribe for. We'll talk to you again soon. At Bet three six five, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.